Mark chapter 1. I'm going to read. We, we dealt with uh, verse 1 last week. So we're a little bit more ambitious this week to go more than one verse. I thought about taking it verse by verse, one sermon at a time. Um, but I don't know if we have enough years together or on this earth to do such. So uh, if you would stand as I read, if you're able. Mark chapter 1, I'm going to read again, verse 1 through verse 13. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. Let's pray. God, we give you glory and praise and thanks for you. We thank you that you have communicated to us in your holy scriptures, and we believe your word. We take hope. And we believe that and we take you at your word. So, Lord, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Give us wills that will yield and submit to you and to your word. And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth, there's none of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So, Lord, this morning, would you speak to us? It is not presumption to ask so, for you have promised that you would speak. So speak, Lord. Speak, Father. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. If last week was the sort of purpose statement, the title statement of the gospel writer Mark, then verses 2 through 13 are a prologue. That here you have an introductory moment that really should be viewed in terms of similar to something like John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And that, that very theologically driven introduction to John's gospel is very memorable. 
The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten Son. Mark is a little bit more subtle, but this is a prologue to what's going to happen. And so, where we're going to be for a stretch, okay? We did verse 1. We're going to talk about the prologue, this beginning preamble introduction this morning. And then after this, there are 13 vignettes, 13 little pictures of Jesus that go through the end of chapter 3. And so we're going to be looking at those little pictures each week. And that'll take us through the end of the year. All right? Buckle up. You're here. Don't bail on me. Um, So we're going to learn a lot about Jesus. And this is what we ought to be doing in church. Studying Christ so that we might become like Jesus. That we, uh, the, the Apostle Paul tells us that we are beholding Him. And what we're transformed from one glory, degree of glory to another. That, that we set our minds and set our eyes not upon the things that are seen, but upon the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen are Temporary, they're transient, they're passing away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And because the Lord Jesus is not visibly present with us, He is among that unseen for the moment. He is the eternal King and Lord, but He will come in a day and be seen again. And may we be a people prepared. Be prepared for the second coming of our Lord Jesus. And so in a lot of ways, John's ministry and this John here that I read, read about, this is not the, the, the Apostle John. This is not the Gospel writer John. Right? He wrote uh, the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He wrote Revelation. Uh, that's not this guy. This is John the Baptist or John the baptizer, or John who is baptizing. You know, some people who aren't Baptists get uncomfortable when you say John the Baptist, but that's what the Bible says. Uh, So he's John, John the Baptist, and he is a forerunner. He is there with a ministry of preparation. He's entrusted with a ministry of preparation, and his ministry of preparation... For the first coming of the Lord Jesus has particular significance for us who ought to be preparing for the second coming of our Lord Jesus. You get what I'm putting down? So the call to prepare, this is not just a historical lesson or something that happened in the around 30 AD, but that this is something for us that we must be prepared For he will return like a thief in the night. No one knows the time or the hour. If someone pops into your life, or he pops onto your TV screen, or puts up a billboard somewhere claiming to know when Christ is going to return, you should run away and turn it off as fast as you can. No man, no woman knows. No man, no woman knows. Do I need to say it again? No man, no woman knows except for the Father when Christ will return. And so we must be a people ready. What we'll see in this prologue is that Jesus is the unique Messiah who is empowered by the Holy Spirit 
so that he can serve a people broken, bent, worn out, and under the oppression of sin, Satan, and death. And not only is he the unique Messiah, but that he is Yahweh himself who dispenses the Holy Spirit. So that Jesus is empowered, he is both empowered by the Holy Spirit, and all of this, as we'll see in a minute, is in fulfillment to the Old Testament. He not only is empowered, anointed by the Holy Spirit, but he himself is the Lord who dispenses, distributes, gives out the Holy Spirit to whom he will. He is this unique Messiah and Lord who is able to serve people who are under the reign of darkness, who are under the reign of sin, who are bound up, who are tempted, who are oppressed, who are broken, who are weary. And I don't know about you, but I find myself in that list. That we need this Jesus, and Jesus is unique. There's no other figure, there's no other person, no other man, no other woman in history that is this. He is the Messiah, the anointed one. That's what Messiah means, that's what Christ means. He is the anointed one, and he is God himself. He is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. And Yahweh, when you go read your Old Testament, which you should do as in our Bible reading plan, and you should do it early, you should do it often, but it shows up probably in your Bible as L-O-R-D, Lord in all caps. That is the personal covenantal name of God, Yahweh. Old school, you might say Jehovah. You get get where I am. But Jesus, here in our text, you might have missed it, but here in our text, he is equated with that Lord. He's equated with the Lord who brought a people out of Egypt. He's equated with the Lord who showed up in the burning bush to Moses. And Moses says, who shall I say sends me? And the the Lord says, I am who I am. That that Yahweh comes from the, the Hebrew, probably comes from the Hebrew word Hayah. It's just, it's like one of the five Hebrew words I still remember. Not really, but it's, I'm not, Hebrew is not my subject. I struggled. But Hayah, because it sounds like, like karate or something, but it's the verb to be. So that Yahweh's name is the self-existent, self-sustaining one. That he is in need of no one. He is dependent upon no one. And I can't get to you how fantastic it is that that God who is in need of nothing, in need of no one, he is Jesus and Jesus is him. Tell me again that the Bible and the Gospels and Jesus does not claim to be God. That's foolish talk for ignorant people who haven't opened it up and who have a bent against God, which is where we were before his grace drew us in. Get excited, sorry. Lathered up, not even into this thing yet. Where do we see that in our text? I want to make this case before we make some of the other cases I'm going to, uh, because it's just so awesome. I can't get over it. 
that Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. It's not the only place in the New Testament that this stuff happens. But notice, uh, verse 2, Mark says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Now what you need to know, as someone might blurp it in your face one day, is that there are two prophets that are represented in two quotations from two different Old Testament books. The first one is from Malachi chapter 3, so it's actually Malachi. But then the primary one is verse 3. So you have Malachi 3 and verse 2, and then you have Isaiah 40, verse 5, and verse 3. And this is a, a common practice in first century literature where the primary, the focus text would be the one that's attributed. So Isaiah. So it's not really a contradiction, nothing wrong happening here. Um, but both of these are promises in the Old Testament saying that promises that are regarding John the Baptist's preparation, ministry of preparation. But notice that his ministry of preparation that he is in verse three, he is the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. So now remember wilderness. We're going to circle back to that. He's the one crying out in the wilderness. What is he crying out? Prepare the way for the Lord. Now in Greek, that's Kyrios. But in the Hebrew, that's Yahweh. That in Isaiah 40, verse 5, that is the covenantal, relational name of God. And so that Jesus is here by a gospel writer in inerrant New Testament literature. He is the Lord of the Old Testament. He is the Lord who is present with the people in the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud leading them through the wilderness. He is the Lord who provided for them quail and manna. He's the Lord who provided water from a rock. Jesus is in the Old Testament. It's all about him. Right? He says as much in Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus. And he unpacked for them. He, he showed them. How all of the scriptures from Moses and the Psalms and the prophets, they talk about him. And if we're going to get Jesus, we have to get this. If you want to continue to think about Jesus, one, as merely a human teacher. And or two, merely as someone who shows up on the scene in Matthew's gospel, then your Christology, your thinking, your doctrine about Jesus is deficient. And as you behold him, you will not behold him in all of his glory. And as you sing in Christ alone, you will not sing in all of his glory. Okay. So Mark though he is often maligned as the shortest of the Gospels, as he's moving rather rapidly through all of these events, this is a very theological book, as is every book of the Bible. <sighs> but we see that Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament who dispenses the Spirit. Jesus is Yahweh of the Old Testament who dispenses the Holy Spirit. Just let it cook for a second. So that through his death, through his death and through his resurrection, it is as though streams of life now flow to many because of what he has done. And he says so in John chapter 7, whoever believes in him, they'll have a fountain of water that comes up, spring of water that comes up within them. And he's referring to 
the Spirit. So that Jesus is empowered by the Spirit to dispense the Spirit. So that you, Christian, have a blood-bought present. A blood-bought promise and gift. And that you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit today because of Christ. Because He is the Yahweh who distributes, who gives out the Holy Spirit to everyone who trusts in Him. So if you have Christ, you have the Spirit. Let's be done with the silliness of that you must, you must have the second blessing. You must have the second fullness. You must have the second experience to really be saved and to really have the Spirit. If, if you have Jesus, you have the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, you have Jesus. Okay? We could talk about that more later. Maybe I stepped on your toes there. Good. So in the wilderness, John comes to, with a ministry of preparation. God prepares his people. God prepares his people and he purifies his people in the wilderness. There are two big words that show up in this prologue. They're not really big words as though like they're long, but they're significant words. And that they they show up several times in this prologue, but they don't show up very often in the rest of the book. The two words, I've mentioned one a lot so far, spirit. The other is wilderness. So Jesus, if Jesus is the anointed Messiah and the Lord who distributes the Holy Spirit... Not only are God's people called to be purified and prepared in the wilderness, but Christ himself is brought into the wilderness so that he could be prepared, so that he could be consecrated. Preparation and purification in the wilderness. This might be... You might find yourself in a wilderness. And if you do not presently, you have been in one. And if you are not presently, you will be in one. And it might be a a spiritual wilderness where it is your spiritual life is dry. Your prayer life is difficult. Your reading of the Bible, it seems strained and there's very little joy. And you're feeling like what has happened here Maybe it's the circumstances surrounding your life and your family and your marriage or with your kids or with your work or maybe with your health or all the the global flux that we presently have and that we are presently introduced to thanks to all of the forms of media that we imbibe that whatever the wilderness is, this dry, arid, seemingly lifeless place. That is where God brings his people to do the work of preparation. Consider the people of Israel. Right? They're living, they're living as, as slaves in Egypt, but their bellies are full. Their thirst is quenched. And yet God, by the hand of Moses and Aaron, brings them out through the Red Sea into the wilderness. I should have asked you that. Well, I was going to ask you. And they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. They want, could you imagine wandering around and 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 up and down and over and all around? 
They wander and they wander and they wander and they wander and they wander. And sometimes I, I, I can identify. Not for, I'm, I'm not yet 40. <laughs> Super close. Not yet 40. So I can't identify with the 40 years thing. But I can identify with the wandering. The, the listlessness, the restlessness, the, the not understanding what God is doing. And dear ones, I want to transform how you see those seasons. Not to take away the difficulty and not to take away the burden of them, but to see that God is present and active and working in those especially. He's working in those especially. When you are in the wilderness. So John summons the people. He came baptizing in the wilderness. He is the voice crying out in the wilderness. And he's summoning people in the wilderness. So people are leaving Jerusalem and Judea and the towns surrounding there. And they're all going out to the wilderness around the Jordan. To these uninhabited areas. So that God would prepare the way for the arrival of his son. And for some of you. The wilderness that you are presently in, the difficulties and the strains and the just the confusion and the darkness it feels like that surrounds you is actually preparation for the inbreaking of God's presence in your life. It's actually preparation for you coming to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. The Lord in this wilderness is, a, is awakening you to the fact that this world does not contain that for which you have been made. This world cannot sustain your joy. It cannot sustain your satisfaction. It can't grant you happiness that endures. And right now you might be in that season where all of those things are falling down. All of the things that you trusted in, all of the things you found satisfaction in, you're beginning to realize that they can't bear your life. They can't handle your hope. And the prayer, and you're hearing this, and the prayer is, is that through, as all of those pillars drop, you'll see the one that never fails. And his name is Christ Jesus, the Lord. So that in this wilderness, you would be prepared to trust him, to be awakened to him. But notice, before they're awakened to him, what is the, why is all of this necessary? Why is there a need for God's son to come into the world? Why is there a voice shouting in the wilderness? Why is there a preacher howling in the pulpit? Open not howling yet. Notice that he's proclaiming, he came baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. That the people who were coming, they were repenting. What were they repenting of? Sin. sin. They were repenting for the forgiveness of sins. The problem here isn't just that the world isn't as it should be. That's true. It's not just that you're made for God. That's true. The problem at hand is the problem of sin. Short little word that... We get confused about what it means very often. 
1 John 3, 4 tells us that sin is the breaking of God's law. It's the dishonoring of God, the disobeying of God. It's the disregarding of God. It's the enjoying the things of God without actually enjoying God. It's the pursuing of the gifts rather than the giver. We could go on and on and on and on about the way sin shows up. But sin is at the root of the brokenness in this world. The wilderness that swirls around you is because there's sin in this world and that there's sin in you. That you in the middle of the wilderness are not guiltless. I'm not saying that the suffering that you you might be presently going through is your fault directly. It might be. You might have made some really dumb, sinful decisions and you're reaping the whirlwind from it. I'm not, I don't know. But sometimes we go through stuff in this life and it's not as though here is the sin equals mark. Here is my pain and suffering. It doesn't always work like that. Oftentimes we go through pain and suffering and loss for reasons that are known only to God. Go read the book of Job. It'll take you all afternoon probably, but go read it. Job suffers as a righteous man. The first Peter implores those who are considered exiles in this world to suffer as Christians, not as those who do wrong. For the forgiveness of sins. What makes the advent of the Savior necessary is the advent of sin. Genesis chapter 3, where disobedience to God became entwined with creation itself. With Adam and Eve and everyone that came from them, including us. So it's not just these people in this wilderness that need the forgiveness of sins. It's these people in this wilderness that need the forgiveness of sins. We need what God is offering to us in the scripture. We need what God is offering to us in Jesus. And so maybe you're hearing this as an unbeliever. You've never trusted in Jesus. And I'm so grateful that you are hearing this. I can tell you of nothing more important. That this is the time for you to repent. What that means, it's, it sounds like, a, like some, somebody with a billboard walking around the street. Just Repent. But what that means is that you need a change. You need a change of mind. You need a change of emotions. You need a change of will. You need a change to go from pursuing and serving yourself and your own sin to now serving the Lord who loves you and gave his son for you. That you need to quit going this direction and trust Jesus That doesn't mean that you need to clean everything up before you come to Christ. The simple thing is come to Jesus. Trust in Christ and who he is and what he has done. But the thing also, the other thing I want to say is that if you're a Christian, you have trusted in Jesus and you are walking with him. That so many of the great awakenings of history So many of the great awakenings, revivals, like true revivals, not like, hey, we're going to do stuff for five days. That's not what I'm talking about. Like true revivals where God visits his people, they happen on the heels of God's people confessing sin. 
And we see it here. All of the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem, they're going out and being baptized by him. What were they doing? They were confessing their sin. And it doesn't always have to be like this, but this word probably means that they were publicly confessing sin. It, it is a, to admit openly, it's in the Greek word there, open confession of sin. Where God's people say, I don't trust in my, how I've tricked you. I don't trust in how I've put on a picture for you. But here is my sin and here is my Savior. Confessing sin in the wilderness. Not just broken circumstances, but broken hearts. The prophet Joel says, don't just tear your garments, tear your hearts. And I believe, and I'm not saying that you have to come up here and you start lining up and you start shouting out all your sin. Unless the Spirit of God gets on you and that's what you have to do. But the Spirit of God can get on you for you to begin confessing your sin to Him. And confessing your sin to the people that you've hurt and sinned against. And that might mean some public confessions of sin. But if we are going to be a people who longs and prays for an awakening that will bring revival to this church and to our community and eventually by God's grace to this country and to this world, then we must be a people who is willing to confess our sins. Revival and awakening will not happen. It will not happen while we are trusting in our own devices. It will not happen while we're trusting in our our ability to put on a good service, our ability to have attractive programs, our ability to have an attractive worship service or an attractive campus or to have a, you know, exciting preaching or exciting music. None of those things will give us the revival that we ache for. And yet God's people in the church have been looking to those things, to the mechanics of the world, to give a spiritual reality rather than bowing on our faces to God. And so for the arrival of King Jesus, sin gets drummed up and confessed so that there is forgiveness. That what makes the way of the Lord crooked What makes the mountains high and the valleys deep for the arrival of the Messiah is the presence of sin. The same is true here. If we're aching for the life-giving flow of the Spirit of God, there might be high mountains of sin and low depths of sin that are, in fact, sort of stymieing and slowing the flow of that water. And you might need to get right with God, dear one. And today is that day. Today is that day. Because you have been extended. Here is Jesus. Here is Jesus. The one empowered by the Holy Spirit. That he would be tempted to serve those who are tempted. And that here is the Lord. Here is the Lord who keeps his promises. Here is the Lord who keeps his covenant. Here is the Lord who dispenses the Spirit. 
And that no one can say, Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. So my prayer is that God would begin in a a heart, two hearts, three hearts. That he would begin a reckoning that would, that on the heels of which awakening might come. True spiritual revival by the presence of God's spirit. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks and praise. We thank you, Jesus, for who you are, and we thank you for the work, God, that you do in the wilderness. But help us to see that even in the wilderness, your spirit is there. And maybe it's in this wilderness with the disruptions and the difficulties of COVID that all of us have experienced on some level or another, some more dramatically than others. Maybe that on top of other sickness and other relationship fractures and children who are wayward or work that is falling apart or health that seems all of a sudden to be faltering. Whatever this season is, God, would your purifying fire knock down our idols? Would knock down the idols of our distraction that dole us to spiritual things? Would you knock down the idols that would threaten to give us false joy that we might enjoy more than you? Do you knock down the idols of blatant sin or hidden sin where we thrive in gossip or in slander or in lust or in greed? where we might be comparing ourselves to other people to try to show to ourselves and maybe to others that we're better. Hiding our deep, deep need for redemption. Would you continue, O Lord, steamroll these things that we might trust in Christ Christ alone. Would you give us grace to get real with you about our sin? But do not leave us in despair, but turn our eyes that we, as John the Baptist says in John's gospel, that we might behold or look to the Lamb of God, Christ, who takes away the sins of the world, including ours. Your word also says that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we take you at your word. So would you have your way and do your work in us and amongst us that we would be a people prepared. People prepared for our Savior 
our Lord, our King's arrival. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.